Uh, the weekend and plenty to catch up with from the day on RTE Radio 1. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. I saw you comforting one of the members of the family. You were actually on the site with them, which given given your own schedule, it was a fantastic gesture. A fantastic gesture. Uh, well, listen, you know, these people are still paying a, a terrible price. And, and you know, it's it's awful what they've been put through. And, and as, yeah. as we continue to move forward, as we mark the agreements, we mark that... Um, it's so important to remember that there are those that are so uh, struggling and that uh, they must not be forgotten. I feel that since the pandemic, people have, you know, become less caring about others. Is Eddie any good as a barber, John? He must be. Uh, listen, Eddie is the best. Yeah. I travelled 3,000 miles to get my hair cut for Eddie. <laughs> And we'll start on Morning Ireland and the fascinating story of the Mexican pilot Ruben O'Cana. He landed a Gulfstream jet on the race course in Mallow after running out of fuel 40 years ago and became a local celebrity. And the experience must have had a profound effect on Ruben because his family have chosen to have his ashes scattered there in Mallow. Irish Examiner journalist Ray Ryan spoke to Gavin Jennings. Tell us about your memories of April uh, 1983. Well, it was a Monday morning um, in April, uh, something like this morning, sun was shining, there was a slight frost, and um, I got two phone calls, one after the other, to tell me that there was a, a, an aircraft uh, trying to land at the race course. So I headed to the race course about two miles beyond uh, Mano, and lo and behold, the executive jet had just landed, and uh, the pilot had alighted, and um, Captain Ruben O'Cana, and uh, he explained to me that he had been uh, travelling from Newark in New Jersey uh, to Munich um, with a scheduled refuelling stop at Shannon. But um, he encountered uh, strong headwinds crossing the Atlantic, and um, it added uh, an hour to his flight time. And uh, when he reached um, reached uh, Shannon, uh, he was unable to land due to fog and he was diverted to Cork Airport. He spent six weeks here before he was able to fly off again and he developed a lot of friendships uh, with people in Mallow, including yourself, friendships um, that continued over the years. Yes, indeed. He returned uh, um, after uh, a few years and uh, he kept in touch with all of his friends here in Mallow. Uh, he sent cards and he was an artist and he sent paintings and the friendship he experienced in Mallow during his stay made a big impression on him and it was a memory he retained until the day he died. Yes, clearly a very big impression on him and his family that they've chosen to scatter his ashes here in Mallow. Indeed, a very poignant occasion this evening. When the, the, I think about 30 members of the family from Mexico and Spain are, uh, arrived here and um, uh, they will scatter the ashes uh, at the racecourse uh, this evening. Ray Ryan on Morning Ireland with Gavin Jennings. And on the Ryan Tuberty show, one of our big acting talents, Niamh Algar, was rushing through London traffic to chat to Ryan about her new series, Malpractice. OK, Niamh, yeah. you, are, you have been starring in The Virtues, uh, The Wonder, Raised by Wolves. You are, your star is on The Ascent. Uh, we, we spoke to you on The Late Late Show before, we spoke to you on this show before, but... I'm really, really pleased for your ongoing success and also really happy to talk to you about your new series. So congratulations on it all. 
Oh, thank you. <laughs> and let's talk about, I want to talk about malpractice because having watched it, uh, I, I, I just think it'll resonate so much with people listening uh, this morning. I felt I was in the hospital. I felt I was running along the corridors beside you. I felt I was sweating with a panic and my nerves were gone. Um, it was very, it's very intense, but I think it, to me it felt authentic. Talk, talk to us about the show and, and your part in it. Yeah, um, so it's brought to you by the makers of Line of Duty, directed by Philip Barantini, who, whose film Boiling Point was out last year. So yeah. it's this uh, it's a medical thriller and it follows uh, Dr. Lucinda Edwards, who's this incredible A&E doctor who finds herself on one of the worst shifts of her life when a gunman comes into the lobby and demands for his buddy to be taken care of. And at the same time um, is dealing with the general kind of uh, stresses of working in A&E where you've got backlogs and time is of the essence. And so, unfortunately, it ends in the death of a young girl called Ida the Wusu, who dies of an opiate overdose. And so a a large um, inquiry takes place into what happened that night. Mm. And so it's kind of one thing after the next, after the next, continuously goes wrong for this um, for this Dr. Lucinda and... Yeah, and as you said, it's it's quite nail, uh, you know, nail biting. Mm, <laughs> so, mm. And you know, as as you said, it resonates much like uh, if I was interviewing an author. I don't want you to say too much more about the show because it is about that line of duty style of secrets and deception and stories unfolding with each episode. But you've given us the you've you've set the the picture for us. Uh, that's only in the first ten minutes. I know so, that's like, a, that, 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 <laughs> I, I don't want you to really say too much more, but. I suppose the word I, I, I would, that, that really struck me watching it was authenticity. So in, in your in your life, I think your mum's a nurse or was a nurse or is still a practicing nurse. I'm not sure. But you had a nurse in your life in some ways and your sister-in-law's a vet. So you know about blood and guts and, and, and the sense of, of a hospital setting. Yeah, well, my sister Jen's a vet. Shout out to Jen. Um, and uh, my sister-in-law, Orla, is a, is a nurse and my mum has been a nurse yeah. her whole life and is retired now. So... Um, yeah, I grew up around. I grew up around people within the medical profession, and you know, in the HSE. Um, so yeah. Okay, but you also shadowed uh, a consultant in uh, the A and E department of a hospital in London. Now, tell me about that shift. When did it begin? When did it end? And what effect did that have on you? What did you see? I yeah, it was. A, I was very, very fortunate and privileged to be given the opportunity to shadow in a central London. A&E and so the shift started at 5pm and finished at 4am 4 4am and 5 yeah. Um, and so yeah it was, a, it was a Friday night and um, it was just an incredible experience to see these incredible people who are in my eyes superheroes I've always said that I've always wanted to play a superhero on screen and I think playing a doctor is the closest thing you can play to one um, just to see the the ability to to solve problems in what feels like a pressure cooker in a you know in a in a in a facility that is completely under under uh, understaffed undervalued mm. um overworked and it's yeah it was uh, it was incredibly eye opening because any time I've been in A&E because I've either been there with loved ones or I've been in A&E myself so to be put in a situation where you're literally just there to observe and listen and see how an A&E runs was a was incredibly eye-opening but you know this story is written by a former doctor someone who worked in A&E Grace Aforiata so everything that was kind of on the page 
I could see completely come to life when I was, you know, seeing it for real in that situation. And you can completely see the the camaraderie of how staff kind of have to literally bond together like a family in order yeah. to get through these in, insane shifts. And, you know, you take a half an hour break um, in that, you know, in that in that time. And so, yeah, it was a it was eye opening. And Ryan asked Neve about that atmosphere in the A&E. You get the sense like a medical shift, even watching malpractice, you get the sense of medical shifts like a, it's like a a, a military attack. You've got to have Mm. like a battle formation. You go in for those hours and you're under extraordinary pressure. Uh, Time plays tricks on your mind and you're exhausted, but you need to be at your most alert. Mm. It's intense. It is intense and I'm lucky that I'm an actor so I, I get the chance to go again if I get it wrong. You don't yeah. if you're a doctor probably. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Do you think people watching the show will be empathetic? Because I, I think sometimes when people are in hospitals as patients or family of patients they sometimes lose maybe their this that this the, the the relationship with with the the staff might be a bit peculiar because you're not really in your own probably best straight state of mind did did you feel that 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 relationship was was has was a bit odd or did you feel people might watch this and go no we need to respect these people a bit more like the old days yeah i think you it's we need to really take care of our public health system and nurture it because i know but not only that you need to nurture the staff that work there because that's a reflection on how we, you know, we're looking after ourselves. So if you've if you've got a good system in place, it's only going to be, you know, it's only going to be working out better for us. Um, but yeah, it's, it was it was interesting playing a character where, you know, essentially something terrible happens and you to be. I, I've always had to say that I have to defend my character like I'm their lawyer, and so you have to justify how something would have come about. Yes. And I think in this situation, given the circumstance of someone who's just worked through a global pandemic, but being on the front line of that, and I suppose for the situation in which they had dealt with before has not changed, it's not gotten worse. It makes you kind of wonder, it's like, are we doing enough and what can be, what can be done to to protect them. Yeah, for sure. And and, and you, you got you got a sense of, of the, all of that uh, watching your performance then. Um, did you practice stitching orange skins or is that is that an urban <laughs> myth or what, what? No, that's not. I was home. I got home and uh, Jen, she she, she uh, brought a suturing kit home and she was like, right, I'm going to sit you down and I'll, I'll show you how to suture uh, because there's a, a scene in it where I'm stitching. There's a couple of scenes where there's quite uh, intensive medical procedures mm. and still our director wanted to create this kind of seamless idea of carrying out the entire scenes without kind of cuts and so we learned the we learned the procedures on, on prosthetics and so therefore we would carry out the, the dialogue and the actions at the same time therefore you could cut between both and I suppose that's what that's what's so great about this is that it, as you said you feel like you're in A&E there's no kind of camera tricks to yeah. pretend that what's happening isn't real and but yeah, uh, orange skins. There wasn't there wasn't a safe mandarin in the house. <laughs> <laughs> there wasn't a mandarin unpeeled for a month. There wasn't an unpeeled mandarin to be had. <laughs> <laughs> I also was very happy to see, as I always am in a good drama with a great actor like yourself, I was delighted to see you kept your accent. I did. And I think that was, uh, that's what I've always tried to maintain is that I didn't grow up 
with many people from Mullingar with accents on on TV shows or films. And so wherever I can, you know, keep that and maintain that, I always do because I think it's important and also to be given the opportunity to play a doctor um, is also vitally important. And so many Irish doctors and nurses in the NHS will, I think they'll kind of go, yeah, that's about right. <laughs> Sounds yeah. good. Sounds good. Um, before I let you go, I just want to say uh, The Wonder, which you were in, I think was arguably my favourite Irish film of last year. Oh, I, thank I, you. I loved it. I loved the setting. I loved the story. I thought you, thought Florence Pugh, everyone else in it. It was just so well crafted, acted, made. Great story. Emma Dunhu's book originally, obviously. Um, did you enjoy it when you when you watched it back? Yeah, like Emma Donoghue is one of, you know, one of Ireland's greatest writers. And so I was a huge fan of her work, but also that story of the fasting girls, I wasn't aware of. And so I think it's amazing that we get to bring these Irish stories out into the open and and have them heard. And and also just for Sebastian Leliod, who directed it, to inject, I suppose, this beautiful kind of take on the Irish culture and countryside and um, Florence you know she's an absolute rock star so to be given that opportunity to work with that team is, is amazing and, great. Yeah, that, I just thought it was a cracking crack little film uh, highly highly recommended now tell me about Mary and George just be, as, we, as, as we look into your future What's, what, what can we expect there yeah so I'm, I'm luckily working with one of my favourite actresses uh, Julianne Moore at the moment playing oh, officer in, in a series um, so we're, we're travelling back in time to Jacobean England um, and so yeah we're currently filming that at the moment and it's all based off of historical facts and uh, yeah it's an incredible story again so yeah it's been a lot of fun a lot of corsets and uh, big costumes <laughs> I, can, I can feel the pain um, <laughs> the, the, uh, is, it, that's, is that directed by the guy who, who directed Living which was one of my favourite films last year yes, I love. Amazing. amazing film yes. so what's he like as a director well you better say nice Oliver things, is he's he, I, I watched Moffie and I watched Living um, many you know a while ago and I was just blown away by just his sensitivity and uh, creative yeah um, yeah he's just he's a lo- like he's, he's South African and such a lovely guy and yeah I'm really excited to see how this all comes together because it's quite original and yeah the first time to kind of, like since the wonder I've read on period uh, stories before so this is this is really exciting Neve Algar from the Ryan Tuberty Show And on Today with Claire Byrne, travel writer Fionn Davenport was looking at staycations. Are you planning a holiday here in Ireland this summer? Well, we know there's a reduction in hotel room stock that would normally be available to accommodate tourists and that's resulted in higher costs and reduced availability. But does all of that mean that 2023 is going to be a bad year for holidaying at home or simply that we need to look beyond the usual places that we might go to to explore a wealth of hidden gems? Well, Fionn Davenport, travel journalist, is here now to tell us all about this. Hello Fionn. Very welcome. So is it a bad year for staycations, holidays at home or do we just need to be a bit smarter about the whole thing? Uh, There's no getting around it. It's going to be a challenging year uh, certainly or a challenging summer. As you mentioned 30% of all beds outside of the capital under government contract which obviously means a reduction in the number of overall beds and increase in price of those available beds. Already in what is a hyper-competitive market, because one of the things about tourism in Ireland is that it's not, it's not uniform across the entire country, as we all know. 
the coastlines get favoured over inland and certain destinations get favoured over others. And so that's, that's, these are issues that have to be dealt with. On top of that, when you add, look, the good news, the government's decision to keep the 9% VAT rate until August is good news for the industry, which is still recovering from the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, although ITIC or the Irish Tourism Industry Confederation, look, they said 7 million International tourists came to Ireland last year, which is still three million shy of the 10 that we got in 2019. But we're going to get more this year. They'll take all the beds. So this is it. (laughs) That's who we're competing with. We're competing with international tourism that the local industry is desperate to attract. And on top of that, you've got, I mean, there are mitigating factors. I think the continuing war in Ukraine is obviously one. Um, the threat of recession in the UK, which is, you know, 50% of all or roughly 50% of all visits to Ireland are from the UK. Um, that's obviously going to be another factor. But long and short of it is this is going to be a busy summer. It's going to be a, a crowded summer and it's not going to be an inexpensive summer. So 30% of beds block booked by the government. Do we have a sort of a map where we can see where the bulk of those beds are you know, taken? I, I don't have, a, I, I, I know that, for example, in Donegal, 50% of all beds are taken by the government. Um, and, and one of, I mean, the argument, I think I might have heard it on your very show, it makes a heap of sense if you're a hotelier is, is that, look, I'm busy 16 weeks of the year, but all of a sudden under government contract, I'm full yes. 365 days of the yeah. year. It's very hard to argue with the, with the economics of mm-hmm. it. The, the overall impact on tourism, though, is not... Uh, not to be not to be ignored, and that is ancillary businesses are going to suffer. Um, however, having said that, and that's those are kind of the stark facts of the matter. Get a little creative. Get you know, it's not about and and this is not to disrespect the well trodden seaside destinations that people go to year after year after year. These are going to be busy no matter what. It's about exploring those other parts of Ireland that are you know that have plenty to offer and are well worth exploring. But for one reason or another, we don't really get around to them mm-hmm. to the same But you're going to, degree. T- you're going to tell I'm us. going to cover some as many right. as, as I can, if I can. The other thing I will mention is shoulder. If you can holiday, look, people with kids have to holiday in the kind of high season because when schools are off, and that's just a fact. But if you haven't got kids or if that's not an issue, shoulder season travel, and that's now, so we're in a shoulder season, or from September, October, as anybody who opens their eyes of a September morning in Ireland knows we get great weather in September, mm-hmm. typically. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously. Or in May. In May or know? in May. Yeah. So so it's about taking advantage of when the kids are back at school, taking advantage of those shoulder seasons. And as I said, about discovering those kind of, I, I won't say lesser known, but perhaps less discovered places. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so I, I have a list of them. Go to on. go through. Take, take yeah, us so, through. Okay, so start with a funny one. So Ardmore in, in, in Waterford. Ardmore is well known. It's got the Cliff Hotel. It's, it's, but it's not as well known as other big seaside destinations. Like not even Tremor. Like Tremor is just like way better known. But Ardmore, in part, it's because it's smaller. In part, it's because it's off the main road. So you have to go down a kind of a slip road that brings you to the town. Um, I think... The establishment of St. Declan's Way. So there's a new pilgrim path that yes, opened up. I saw it. I was down there. Oh, last, you did? Last year, I think it was. And I yeah, saw it. And, and so, also, do you know what I loved about it? They have those gorgeous little shops where you have pottery and painting. Ah, sure. Ardmore Pottery. Admore Pottery is amazing. Yeah. And, that, and like that's a very good example of a local business that thrives mm-hmm. because it not only does it produce its own stuff, but it also 
uses makers from all over Ireland and it's really high quality it's right at the edge you've got St Declan's Well St Declan's Church the earliest Christian remains in Ireland and as I said the start of this pilgrimage way which is established I think maybe 2021 Um, but it's relatively new and relatively unknown and it's a walking path similar to the Camino de Santiago um, that leads you to Cashel now you can do it for any reason, whether spiritual, religious, or just because you you want like to get walking. the steps in. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, absolutely. But and 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 I think incentives like this are great for the country and for future tourism because what they do is they allow pop up cafes and 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 places that all of a sudden are going to service walkers along that route. But start in Ardmore. Ardmore is gorgeous. It's got amazing beaches that only locals know about. And I know a couple of locals who are probably listening going, Fionn, would you ever shut up and stop <laughs> telling people about it? And Fionn spill the beans on other hidden gems. Another part of the country that's not as well visited, Cavan Lakes, okay? And like, honest to God, is, is that like Kerry or Wicklow's Lakes? Yes, they get a, a lots of attention. Yeah. And they're very, very beautiful. But like 365 lakes in the county, you're right. And it's Cavan, Leitrim and Sligo, I think, are neglected counties, aren't they? Yes, they are. And and they're stunning. When it like, comes to tourism. All of Leitrim is neglected. And it really, sh- I mean, you've got Carrick and Shannon. So Carrick is the access for cruising along the Shannon and that's busy enough. But the rest of the county, like you've got, like, say, I know that in the last year, Drumherney Hideaway opened up, which is these beautiful kind of Scandi style cabin accommodation. I mean, like, honest to God, you went down there for a little holiday, like making s'mores on the open fire. It's really breathtaking. But back in Cavan, like you've got, like you've got Lake Oter, which is part of Killikeen Forest Park, great for woodland walks, boat rentals. So if you're looking for that kind of holiday, you've got um, the Cavan Adventure Centre is there so the kids can go and engage with like lots of different activities. You've got islands, Castle Island in the middle of Loch Oter, which is really beautiful and you can kayak and it's got the remains of an old castle. Um, I mentioned uh, Drumherney and Leitrim. So Cabo by the Lakes, which opened a few years ago and all the cool kids go to Cabin because Cabo is, is, is really quite something. It's got like all these log cabins and lake houses and they form really great accommodation and very, very popular now. Mm-hmm. Like certainly have done well. Um, and so, yeah, so Cabin, you mentioned Cabin, Leitrim, Sligo. Absolutely, these are counties worth exploring. Mayo is another county next to, which relatively gets fewer tourists, although Westport and the Greenway. Very popular. Very popular. And Ackle, obviously, on the back of the Banshees of Inisherin, is going to see a boost in, in visitor numbers. The Mullet Peninsula, like in the northwest corner of Clare, I mean, honest to God, it's so breathtakingly beautiful. And um, it's, you know, it, it's, it's just great. And then Clare Island, okay? So Clare Island is the biggest island, if I'm not mistaken, in um, Clue Bay. Well, it's kind of on the edge of Clue Bay. Clare Island, people go to Ackle and they go to, to the Iron Islands and go, absolutely. And But Clare Island is so beautiful. Um, you get there, you cross over and you've got um, Granula's Castle, you've got a Cistercian Abbey. But more than anything, you've got sea cliffs. Clare, Cliffs of Moher, absolutely. Um the sea cliffs on Clare Island are relatively unpredictable. There's just a little fence and nobody's there. And what do you do? A day trip or do you, do you stay? No, you can stay. There's a beautiful lighthouse accommodation. There's a brilliant hostel, like an absolutely brilliant hostel on the island. So you can, you can go there for 
you know, relatively cheap. Or if you want to have a little romantic getaway, there's this beautiful lighthouse that's been converted into a boutique accommodation. And But the island itself... It, I, co- I remember writing about it for the Irish Times a number of years ago and I went out for the first time and I was blown away mm-hmm. by how beautiful it was. You, you've got Fermanagh on your list as well. I do. I think is a good one to mention. Yeah, so the lakes of Fermanagh, again, is, is that you've got like the kind of the wide expanses of Upper and Locker. Did I say Locker? You did. Lower Loch Urn <laughs> are the ones. So it's got, again, lakes full of islands, 154 of them. You can rent boats for the day from Urn Adventures. You can go to in Enniskillen, Monastic remains on Devonish Island. Um, you can climb the stairway to heaven. So the stairway to heaven, basically, it's the Quilca Boardwalk Trail, and it goes and it's really beautiful and great views on a clear day. Um, yeah, I, I think Fermanagh is really it's all part of the Marble Arch Caves UNESCO Global Geopark, so it's it's really quite well protected. Um, the stunning views. Beyond Davenport from today with Claire Byrne. And on the live line, a young 89-year-old Eddie McAvoy may just be Ireland's oldest working barber. Eddie, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Joe. How are you? And a happy birthday, Ed. Oh, thank you very much, Joe. Thank you. What 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 milestone did you hit yesterday? Uh, a young 89. A young 89. And can I ask you, Eddie, yeah. given, have you still got your own hair? Oh, a bit of it, anyway. A bit of it, because <laughs> we believe, and we're going to try and prove it today, we believe yeah. you are the oldest working barber in Ireland at the minute. Oh, I didn't know that. Now, oh, yeah. Tell, well, tell us where are you working? I work in the Grafton Barbers in Grafton Street. Funnily enough. I've, I've been working in Grafton Street since 1964. Okay. And how long have you been cutting hair? About 70 odd years. Good luck. Good luck. Yeah. So you started, what, in the 1950s? The 50, 51 I started, um, Joe. Whereabouts, Eddie? I started in Fibsborough. In Dublin, Fibsborough. In Dublin, yeah. But they used to have the bank, the Ulster Bank or something on the corner, Doyle's Corner, you turn left down towards the Broadstone. Yeah, well, that's that was... That, was it the yeah. Monster Bank? That's where Terry Wogan used yeah, to the work. Mon- yeah, Terry- I used to cut his hair too. Oh, did you? Fair play to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Way back in the 60s. Okay. In the 60s. Yeah, the 60s. And he was a good head, wasn't he? Oh, he's a good head, all right. He okay. Really so you started in 1951. And where yeah. did... Okay, did you... did you? What does a barber do? Do you then... Sorry, apart from good hair. Do you then oh, go... Yeah, and, I mean, do you go and try and work for yourself? That's what I mean, Eddie. I know. At the time, I'd done my apprenticeship. Okay. And when I was finished my apprenticeship, I opened up a little barber shop in Fingers Village. My son's godfather was Irish Italian and he had a fish and chip shop. And then the front... Going up the hill to Finglas, he had a garage, so he converted it into a small barber shop for me. Okay, and what do you remember the name of it? Oh, just my name, just barber shop, you know, nothing else. Just Eddie yeah. Eddie McAvoy. Eddie yeah, is, yeah, it, yeah. is it Mac, Ma, Eddie McAvoy? Eddie Mac. So yeah. Eddie's Eddie's barbers. Okay. So yeah, the, yeah. and how big was that salon or that that barber? Uh, it was only a two soon, two soon, two soon. That was fifty three. And would you and be? I left there in, yeah, okay. go ahead. No, you keep going. It's your story. Go yeah, ahead. I left, I, left, I left there in '56 and I went to England then. Okay. Uh, things were quiet in Ireland back in the 50s. You know? And where did you go to in England? Uh, I worked for the. First of all, I went to work for the American Air Force in a place called Huntington. Okay. In, um, yeah, and the place out there, the, the bar, the, um, the air base is outside a place called Alcombury. That's the name of it. 
But you, never did police. But you were still barbering. Oh yeah, all barbering all the time. I've never done anything else but barbering, you know. Okay, so you love it. Oh God, yeah, I love the company and the people, and you meet just so many different people from all over the place, all over the world, even, you know. And when you, you know? were doing the American soldiers, did they all have to get the same haircut? No, no. Well, it's either a two and a half inches or a crew cut. That was the rule. A two and a half inches um, or a what, Eddie? Or a crew cut. A crew flat cut. Top, flat top. Flat, flat top. top. Like a flat okay. top. Yeah, yeah, that's what the rule. And what and way? You, yeah, what way? You were you paid per head, or were you you paid? By oh the, no, you got a basic, you got a basic wage. You got about nine pound a week plus commission. You got for your work, you know, which was good back in the fifties. You know, nine pound a week. So all you and, and what you you whoever came in, whoever soldier came in, you had to cut his hair. Oh yeah, and then they were paying with what they call script money, stage money. It wasn't real dollars; it was stage money they used to use. Okay. That's what they use, yeah. And do you do do you do a dry cut or a wet cut, Eddie? I do wet or dry, whatever you wish. Dry. I'm okay. mostly dry, mostly dry. And like you... when I do wash a head of hair then I might tidy up bits and pieces afterwards, you know, okay. I have to finish. And you, you know? just have you always done men and boys, so to speak? Always always, always men, yeah. Always, always boys and men. Yes. And what about when the new styles come out, Eddie? Oh, the fights. Yeah. I'm not, not about them, but I do them if I have to, you know. You know, I prefer the old style, sharp back and sides, those type of things. But the fades, you know, the fades, it's a new trend anyway, so what, you have to go with the flow, as they say. You know? and, but, but nothing phases you? No, 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 no. Okay. I just deal with them. You, you, are, you are a cutter both there. Come on, keep get, get those barber gags in now. You are a cutter. Those barber ones. You are a cutter but the rest. I bet you'll tell me your favourite group or the Scissor Sisters. But anyway, any famous <laughs> any any famous customers over the years? Well, Gabo was one. Ah. Paddy Royley, Brendan O'Reilly from RTE. Of course. And Eamon Lawler. Eamon Lawler was yeah, one Yeah, great as well. Eamon Lawler, and yeah. Then we had, then we had a few ambassadors. Paddy Hillary. The John, president, yeah. And uh, John, um, what's his name, one of the prime minister, what's his name, Bruton, he was in. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right yeah different people, and you know. Still, John, John Bruton still hailing heart. He's writing in the Belfast Telegraph this morning, yeah? So oh, there you go. John Fitzpatrick, I'm told the hotelier. I'm told Jimmy Nesbitt, the actor, the great actor. Oh, yeah. Yes, I met him, yeah. I met him. All those sort of people. You know, during the course of your work, they do films and they get their hair cut, you know, to suit the film and all that type of thing. And would, would people come come in, Eddie, to Grafton Street specifically asking for you? Oh, yeah. Well, for many, many, many years, uh, all my work was by appointment. Oh, good luck. Like, I I actually have a book in in the shop, and I call it the Book of Kells. There's names and phone numbers. It's over 50 years old, the book is. You know, where all the names and numbers. You know, people, different people from all walks of life, you know. And actor James Nesbitt called the live line to wish Eddie a happy birthday. Hi, Joe, you well? Yeah, good. good. Would you, well, get, get it out of the way. Just wish Eddie a happy birthday, James. No, absolutely. I mean, uh, Eddie, the very, very happiest of birthdays to you. I used to see Eddie a lot in the shop. I mean, Connor yeah. and Jim McAllister, yeah. two of my best yeah. friends. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anytime I was in the shop being butchered by Connor, uh, Eddie was always there. <laughs> and, uh, no, no, the original yeah. draft of Marvel, so it's, it's, it's an incredible achievement. I mean, he's a real credit to... To uh, uh, himself, his family, the Grafton Barber, and the, the McAllisters are just always delighted to have had such a long relationship with him. Brilliant. Yeah, well, yeah. well said. Thank and you Jay- very much, Jimmy. Thank you, Jimmy. Thank you very much. My and pleasure, Eddie. Keep going. And You're Jimmy, 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 yeah. where, as the fellow said, where are you now? 
I'm actually about to tee off in Royal Port Rush Ooh. Golf Course. Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. I'm about to go out there now. Yeah, I've just finished the Sky film, a Christmas film for Sky. Brilliant. All joy to the world. Um, but no, I'm just about to enjoy myself. Well, I'm about to actually put myself through four hours of absolute torture. Anyway, it uh, has to be done. And, and uh, James, you were mentioned on this programme a few weeks ago in, in, in another good light because people were talking about the movie you did with Martin Sheen called The Way, uh, about yeah. the Camino. Do you remember that one? Oh, I loved it. You yeah. know, I mean, it was a really such an important experience, such a, a, a kind of inspirational sort of experience yeah. for me work-wise because it was not only work, it was a real joy and working with Martin was great but, but just to be able to take part in so many stages of the actual Camino and meet yeah. the pilgrims and just see what it means to people and funnily enough since the film has come out uh, many years ago now I mean yeah. the amount of people I've met who were inspired by it to do the Camino yeah, that's and what I, we're... I think it really it's so wonderful and, and actually you know I think we're, we, we would like to do another one at some stage I think Mar- um, Emilio's got an idea to do another one brilliant but people were saying they were I, I don't know whether you remember this scene Jimmy but the scene when some courier robbed your haversack you, All right. yeah and, and you chased them Okay, ah, do you remember? Yeah. And in your in your best uh, Ballymena accent, you show you people said this is this is when they knew the movie was true. You shouted at them, "Come back here, you little, you little bee!" And it was just absolutely, absolutely brilliant. J- Jimmy, just just before you go, you must be um, g- given your own interest and in your own great work with Wave Trauma Centre. You must be mm. thrilled with the the fact that so many. Uh, international politicians turned up this week for the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. It was so important and so important to keep it alive in people's minds. so important to to mark just what an incredible achievement it was, to mark the work that that has been done, but also to remember that, you know, for a lot of people, it's still not over. You know, it still goes on for a lot of people. And and particularly Wave Trauma have been working so well with people all over the years, and particularly now the disappeared. And uh, we're we're so close to getting all of the disappeared now. And we just, as I always say, I always try and prick people's conscience. If you know anything at all, please come forward and strict confidentiality. But but it's wonderful. I mean, and it's so important, you know, that that we we continue to... to, to carry on the work that the agreement stood yeah. for and to try and make sure that that new generation of kids that grew up in peace know yeah. uh, only peace as they get older. And I saw, and I know you didn't look for publicity out of it, but I saw you in a, in a, in a photograph which, anyway, was taken very discreetly. I saw you comforting uh, in situ as the authorities looked for one of the disappeared. I saw you comforting one of the members of the family. You were actually on the site with them, which given given your own schedule, it was a fantastic gesture, a fantastic gesture. Uh, well, listen, you know, these people are still paying a, a terrible price. And, and, you know, it's it's awful what they've been put through. And, and as, yeah. as we continue to move forward, as we mark the agreements, we mark that uh, milestone, it's so important to remember that there are those that are so... Uh, struggling and that uh, they must not be forgotten. Okay, so again, reiterate, as I'll reiterate it for you, as you just said, if anyone has any scintilla of information about the disappeared, if anyone, if anyone has information, they know who we're talking about. If there's any yeah. way, as J- James Nesbitt just said, as Jimmy Nesbitt just said, if there's any way you can try and uh, alleviate the pain of those families, it will be deeply appreciated. Uh, can I ask you I'm finally, there. Jimmy, who are you playing golf with? I'm playing off with my daughter Peggy's boyfriend, Barney. Okay. <laughs> uh, and then uh, the great Gaz Stevenson, who's also a caddy here. 
Uh, he's a caddy and sometime beer buddy. And uh, no, we'll go out and we'll enjoy it. And are you still a Man United fan? I am. I just I was there last night. Oh, thought yeah. it was awful. Oh, condolences. No, I was over there with Fergie and them. Okay. We were very uh, disappointed by the uh, performance, shall we say. <laughs> okay, what's your next movie or TV project? Well, the, the Christmas one you know, mentioned. I've got the Christmas one coming out, Switch of the World, and so um, we'll see what's next. There's a few things bubbling around, but you know, I'm getting old now. I've been working. Oh, do you stop? Much, so. Do you stop? So I'm just going to enjoy myself, you know? At this stage, uh, at this stage, Jimmy, you've caught more criminals than most real yeah. policemen at this no, stage. I, I say what I always say, I'm the... Um, I'm the longest-serving policeman in Northern Ireland. <laughs> James Nesbitt there. And they were queuing up to wish Eddie a happy birthday. Here's hotelier John Fitzpatrick. John, uh, yeah. Irish hotelier John Fitzpatrick. Where are you, John? I can't keep up with you. Are you in Dublin? Are you in Manhattan? Are you in Lexington <laughs> Avenue? Are you in Wicklow? Where are you? Oh, my God, you you all the locations. How are you, Joe? I am actually just came back from Belfast. I heard you talking about the 20th. Uh, the Good Friday Agreement conference, an amazing uh, few days up there. But I came back, and would you believe I was in with Eddie this morning? Give, ah. Eddie gave me a haircut. <laughs> Sharp back and size. And John, uh, John, tell us where I, I, I didn't know you were in Belfast. Did, were you there for George Mitchell's speech? I was. I was actually there. I was, I was there for Biden the week before, and then went back up for uh, to join them um, because I'm involved with the uh, Queen's I know University. That. And uh, be fair to me, his speech was unbelievable. I heard and that, it was yeah. the first time I've ever heard of, it was a 45-minute speech. It was the first time in my life where it felt like five minutes when someone speaks that long. He yeah. was just amazing, and his wife, Heather. Look, he, you know, we just don't know how lucky we are to have, to have had him at the time, yeah, you yeah, know? Yeah. And apparently, it was too, as you say, an August gathering. But apparently there was a lot of people in tears at the end listening to George Mitchell, just as his his sincerity, his dignity, his commitment, talking about that conversation he had with his wife about the number of children who were dying uh, in the north. And she said to him, give it one last go. Please give it one last go. It was an amazing, amazing contribution. Anyway, um, is is Eddie any good as a barber, John? He must be. Uh, Listen, Eddie is the best. I travelled 3,000 miles to get my hair cut with Eddie. By the time you go back, John, you need your hair cut again. Honestly, you you might laugh at it, but the first time I went to Eddie was with my father, and Eddie was, they had a shop in Brown Thomas's. That's many, many years ago. I think it was about 40 years ago. It was was probably Switzer's then. I've cut my hair ever since. And, you know, people say to me, why do you get your hair cut in Ireland? But the Eddie does look, you know, you go to someone like Eddie and, you know, I time it. I kind of get it. So that's why I'm leaving on Sunday to go back to New York. And I know I'm not back for six weeks, but uh, he's great. And Eddie, happy birthday, you know. And have you still got it? Speak freely now, John. Have you still got a fine head of hair? Well, that's what I said to him this morning. I said his job is getting easier every time, but yeah. I'm an old-fashioned guy. I don't like these blades and number twos and number threes like all my nephews get done. I want Eddie to do, and Eddie does the old time. I mean, I'd sit in the chair, and you'd see the young fellow sitting beside me, and Eddie does it from start to finish between cutting the hair, the wet, the hot towels, and he'll give you a shave with, with, the, with the blade, the raw blade as well, if you want it. I mean, he's, he's the best. It's the best. Well done. Well done. Have you, I mean, surely you've, you've had to in New York, Manhattan. You've had to get your hair cut over there at some stage. Well, I'll be honest with you. There's an emergency when I don't get back. I have to. And they make such a mess of it. And then when I come back, <laughs> Eddie looks at it and then says to me. But even Eddie comes over to me. I mean, Eddie used to come over to me every summer. 
and spend a couple of weeks. So I'd always time it that he'd do it when he came over to me as well. So, you know, I have a time. Everyone laughs at me. I, I came down from Belfast this morning, and the first stop was ready to get it done before I go back. <laughs> So just before before you go, John, because we I went off track, but I was led led in fairness by what what Jimmy Nesbitt wanted to say about the disappeared. I get the impression this conference in Queens this week was was uh, seismic in terms of its impact on people. There seemed to be uh, some movement. Absolutely. I mean, we forget. You know, it's twenty five years ago. Yeah. But I think George Mitchell's speech reminds us a lot of things that went on. You know, and you know. You don't want to get into politics here yeah. on, the, uh, on, on the radio, but I think it, you know, everybody realised that how far we've come and and how far we can go. Yeah, so yeah. it's it's just, and I think it just reminded everybody, you know, that, that life goes on, but yeah. still, you know, we've made a lot of progress, but there's still places to go, and I think we'll get there. And I think with a speech like Mitchell, I think everybody was sitting on the edge of their chair, and you know, the likes of President Clinton too. I mean, the commitment and. that he's had over and Hillary Clinton you know we are very lucky to have the right people and to have the the Taoiseach at the time Bertie and um, you know um, Tony Blair as well but you know you've got to remember too you've got to remember the Albert Reynolds in the early days and Jim Bruton so we were just lucky to have all those I think as Mitchell said himself it was the right people in the right place at the right time, you know, so we're very lucky. John Fitzpatrick on the live line with Joe Duffy. And on Morning Ireland, conservation of one of our rarest birds. Well, if you didn't know already, that's the sound of the curlew. And Sean Harrison, who's project manager at a curlew conservation project, is on the line. Sean uh, Harrison, a very good morning to you. Good morning. How are you? Now, you're involved in overseeing curlew conservation projects in nine counties and we're coming up to nesting season. So what does your work involve, Sean? Well, what we do... um Onya, is we, we, we engage with landowners and uh, that may have curlew, uh, nesting curlew on their lands. And what we do is we put into place a, a system of measures uh, that we can, that we can uh, basically increase the balance in favour of the bird. Um, simple things like once we find, we find a nest, we monitor the birds and we survey them and we find the nest and then we put up a fence around the nest to protect it from predators and stuff like that. But we also work uh, hand in hand with the, the landowner to uh, to basically you know make small changes to his uh, farming regime that may uh, increase the the balance for and and increase the the ecosystem the the quality of the habitat and ecosystem for the bird. And uh, where do the curlews nest, and how much have their numbers fallen? Well, the the numbers you know basically they fell off a cliff edge uh, there a few years ago. Like back in the in the late eighties, early nineties, we had. You know, uh, estimated over four thousand breeding pairs in uh, of uh, of curlew in Ireland. Uh, last year, um, we would have had no more than one hundred and fifty pairs. So that it's it's a considerable drop, and you know, it's it's uh, it's a it's a 
it, it's something that's very tough for a lot of people because the, this bird was very evocative and you know it, for a certain age group in this country it's as common as the the sound of the cuckoo you know and it's as, it's as important to some people as the, as the sound of the cuckoo but it's it's largely uh, disappeared from our landscape and why like why have is, is it because of you know the water quality is it because of land drainage what is it well, it's it's a combination of factors, really. Like we have, uh, I suppose, if you look at it, land use uh, would be the would be the main factor. Um, if you look at probably thirty years ago, thirty five years ago, there was a lot of forestry was planted, and it was planted on marginal land on the edge of bogs. You know, like kind of grassy, uh, poor quality pasture land on the edge of bogs that wouldn't have been you know the best quality land. So it was planted in in forestry and stuff of like that, and that essentially took away the habitat for the curlew. Um, but it also created a habitat for all of the predators that, you know, feed on the curlew. So uh, it was a double-edged sword. And then when you combine that with, you know, uh, the intensification of agricultural systems over the past 40, 50 years and the amount of drainage of bogs, drying out the vegetation, drying out the bogs, and then wildfires come along afterwards, there's a whole host of, of, of mm-hmm. issues that the poor curlew has to deal with. What do their eggs look like and what does the curlew look like? We've played the sound and I'm going to play it again at the end actually for somebody yes. uh, who doesn't know. But if, if somebody's out walking this weekend, in, in what areas should they be keeping an eye out and what should they be keeping an eye out for? Well, what we what we uh, have at the moment now is we have a lot of birds passing through migratory birds and stuff and we get overwintering birds that come in from northern Europe. Um, but what we have, our breeding curlews, um, they largely like to like to breed in, in like a mixture of, of bog and, you know, kind of green pasture land that will be on the edge of a bog. So they, they have kind of the, a mix of both because that's where their, their food source uh, uh, lies. Um, the eggs, uh, we, we wouldn't expect people to find uh, nests and stuff like that. You know, if they did happen to come across a nest, it, they're a, a, a small egg, uh, a little bit smaller than a hen's egg. They're a dark green mottled uh, colour. Uh, so they're very well cla- camouflaged. Um, these birds are very well camouflaged on the ground. All right. Um, so if, if they do, uh, what we're basically asking is if they do hear curlews or see curlews in their area, um, to let us know uh, so that we can get out there and we can maybe find some new nesting sites so we can we can uh, provide a better a better framework of protection for these birds. John Harrison on Morning Ireland with Anya Lawler. And in the afternoon, the Ray Darcy Show was broadcasting live from Laytown, County Meath. We're in the Roadcaster, we're on the promenade and we're in Laytown, County Meath. Yay! Why Laytown, you say? Well... Back in 2019, at the end of 2019, before the world changed, we said, we want to get out there. We want to meet the people. We had plans to do an OB, an outside broadcast, once a month, maybe twice a month. And then, of course, as I say, the world changed and we didn't go anywhere. But we got an invitation from Siobhan, who's a member of the Bettystown Swim Tribe, to come down and meet her and her fellow swimmers back at the end of 2019, the beginning of 2020. Uh, And we're here on that invitation. Uh, and we're here on the promenade. You can see the roadcaster. Laytown is a beautiful town. It's a seaside town in County Meath. I know, Yeah, usually when people think of County Meath, they don't think of the sea. Uh, people sometimes mistakenly think that Meath is a landlocked county. It's not. And it has this lovely stretch of beach, uh, which runs from the River Boyne uh, right down or up to the River Nanny uh, at Laytown. Um, and it's it's here... We're opposite uh, O'Reilly Supermarket. More about that in a moment. 
It's about a 46, 48 minute drive from Dublin, depending on what time of the day um, you're, you're, you're driving. And, and it's beautiful. And today the sun is shining, the sky is blue. Now, it is a little bit windy. There's a northeast wind uh, and the wind is wild uh, and the sea is wild. And the crowd we met earlier on at the slip uh, were wild as well. They were members of the Laytown Wave Warriors and Bettystown Swim Tribe. Uh, and they invited me to go for a sea swim with them. And, and before we went in, we decided to meet some of the people. So hello, who are you? I'm Leslie. I'm born and bred in Laytown. I've been doing this with the group for about three years. It's, it's a completely addictive. So I have a new um, friends from it. It's just fantastic. Thanks, Leslie. Who are you? Hi, um, my name is Lisa Wybrandt. Um, I joined the Wave Warriors about probably two years ago as, as well now. Um, it's a fantastic group. Um, we meet up every day um, at the Slip area in Laytown. We're, we're in hail, snow, aren't oh, we, rain? Christmas, um, day. Christmas Day. Yeah, it's it's fantastic social group and it, it's just brilliant. It was amazing down there today. I was expecting to meet two or three people. They reckon there were 50 people all getting into the wild Irish Sea. Who are you? My name is Geraldine White. Um, I joined in January this year, um, new, my New Year's resolution, and um, I just love it. I come in the bus every day from Drogheda, um, and I live at the other side of Drogheda, so I have, it takes me about an hour to get here, but I just I can't imagine my day without coming here. It's just It just gives you such a buzz when you get out like and like they're so friendly the the wave warriors and they're so welcoming and it's just it's changed my life I have to say ah it changed Geraldine's life and there was all shapes and sizes there were people in wetsuits without wetsuits people with hats without hats there were bootines there were gloves there were all sorts of things but what was it like? Like, I was there, but I asked the woman to describe it. It's buzzing at the moment. There's a lot of us down here today, and there's a few extras even. And um, we're all just dying to get in now, and the, the waves are, they're huge down here today. So it's exciting, it is. It's really exciting. I went for a second opinion. It's a washing machine, washing machine thing is the same thing as, as getting into a washing machine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was. It was pretty wild. And we were all there, you know, and, and like everybody there had obviously been in the sea before, but I don't think many of them had seen the sea as wild as it was today. So we were sort of putting off the inevitable, chatting to each other. And then eventually I said, come on, we have to do this. So I donned my Irish Cancer Society yellow hat. They're doing a, a lovely promotion for um, May, a splash a day in May. And you can find out more from the Irish Cancer Society website. Uh, and then we went in and it, it, there was something primal about it. Uh, people giggling and hollering and hooting and holding hands. And it's just there was something, some connection with nature. I can't really describe. I'm lost for words. But Lorraine, she didn't get in, but she was there to commentate on my progress in the sea. Well, I'd say Ray is reaching high notes at the minute. <laughs> and I think, do, do you know what? It's just beautiful. The waves are very strong. There's, um, people are just united together, holding hands, um, supporting each other. Like that's what we do in life every day. We support each other, and this is what the swimming group is all about. It doesn't matter where you're from or who you are. Uh, you just put a swimsuit on, and you're just accepted. Couldn't have put it better myself, Lorraine. But how was I getting on, Lorraine? Ray is on his tippy toes at the minute. He's um, he hasn't really got down yet. He's um, a, a lot of women all around him at the minute, encourage him to get down. But it's working bit by bit. Now, 
Uh, and we did. And it, it, it's up there on the RT Radio 1 Instagram. Uh, there is something something special happened today. I don't know exactly what it was. Uh, and uh, Emily was there with the microphone and she was uh, asking people how they got on, when they got out. Oh, wonderful. Believe it or not, it's really good fun. It's really refreshing and we love it. We absolutely love it. Absolutely great. Travelling about the course of an hour to do this swim. And it's just amazing. They come from all over, from as far away as Monaghan. Uh, to swim here uh, in Laytown with the Laytown Wave Warriors and the Bettystown Swim Tribe. And uh, people have been slagging off sea swimming over the last few years, saying it's a fad. How do you know a person sea swims? They'll tell you. Well, I think it's not a fad. I think it's here to say. And it, it definitely, the people that I met today, it's making a real difference to their lives. Ray Darcy in Laytown County Mead in the afternoon. And on today with Claire Byrne, how successful are those quiet carriages on trains? Brian O'Connell was reporting in the morning. The introduction of uh, quieter carriages on Irish Rail's Dublin to Cork service wasn't entirely without some initial teething problems. The carriage is available to passengers with sensory issues or those who simply want a more meditative journey. But how has it worked in practice and what does the need for such a carriage say about modern public transport etiquette? Well, our reporter and regular train user Brian O'Connell joins me now. So, Brian, this is just one carriage on that service. Yes, it's the carriage G on the Dublin to Cork train. It was introduced in early November and you have the option when you're booking your ticket or buying in person to opt for this quieter carriage and signage on the train would indicate that it is a quieter carriage. So the idea would be you'd have regard for passengers around you. You obviously don't conduct a 15 minute loud phone call on speakerphone from your seat. Now tell us about those teething problems that I mentioned. Well, Ken Fox was reporting on an FOI he obtained in the Irish Daily Mail which showed that when this policy first came into being it actually led to confrontations between some passengers over loud talking banter use of mobile phones it seems some passengers Claire believed the carriage would be totally silent one customer actually was even challenging a ticket inspector for doing his job because he was making too much noise and checking tickets so this has obviously led now to better signage some clear communications from Irish Rail about the policy which is a quieter carriage so I asked Barry Kenny who's Corporate Communications Manager with Erin Rod Aaron about whether the carriages were meant to be quiet or were they meant to be silent? We're not asking for a, a mime artist environment. It is reasonable activity. But, you know, it's about if you have to make or take a phone call to leave the carriage if you can. It's about considering if you're travelling with kids, you know, is that an environment that the kids will be able for? So there were a few teething problems. Ken Fox had a story in relation to an internal memo, but this was in the early days you, you were pointing out to me. It's very important that as we're introducing something like this, that we we work with our staff who are on board, who are dealing with our customers every day to understand, you know, what were the questions people were asking? Just like, I suppose, what you just asked now, uh, is it silent or is it, is it is it quieter? What about phone calls? Things like that. To get the feedback, to understand, I suppose, what's happening, Clarity of information is, is absolutely key in all of these things. So if you're booking online, if you're or if you're just showing up at the station and buying your ticket, it is very visible that what you're choosing in both cases is a quieter coach. Uh, it kind of seems to me that quieter carriages are what all of the carriages should be. You know, it's really just about people having regard for the fact that they're in a shared space. You obviously want courtesy uh, throughout uh, the train. People make and take phone calls. And uh, one of the reasons people are doing their business, you know, 
uh, and we we market that we promote the fact that you know uh, you can conduct your your your, your meeting uh, albeit with headphones on I would stress uh, when you when you're traveling with us certainly we do not want people playing music without headphones will you do anything about people bringing the supermax onto the train <laughs> but I mean, I have to say, I'm partial to the old uh, uh, chicken breast sandwich. Well, no, so am I. But, I just, I have, I, but when there's five or six people eating it around me in a small space, <laughs> right. sure, and I can't open the window. I'd say that that is a, that is a beautiful aroma for for, for some <laughs> people as well. Barry Kenny there. Now, do we know is this quiet carriage uh, system and scheme, is it going to be rolled out on other routes? Yeah, I mean, good luck trying to roll it out on the Lewis, for example. Um, they hope to extend it actually to routes in the future, but no immediate timescales, Barry was telling me. And Brian asked some passengers what they thought of quiet carriages. A good idea, yeah. I had a nice carriage on my way, myself and another lady chatted, so we didn't use any phones. And there was nobody watching the laptop without the headphones? or No having a conference call with about 10 different people. No, it was very quiet. I was in the wrong carriage anyway that I should have been in, but it didn't matter. It was quiet and there was loads of space. And would you seek out a quieter carriage if, if, you, if you were aware there was one on the train? I, I suppose I could have gone and looked, but... I you were happy to chat away on the happy, way down. Yeah, yeah. Brian, on the wider issue of mm. etiquette and manners, you spoke to an expert about this. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm not trying to drag us back to the Victorian area here, Claire, just in case people think I am. But, but maybe there's a case to be made for perhaps a general feeling that good manners, good etiquette needs to be reinforced. I mean, the fact that Irish Rail have to make a carriage quieter with signage would sort of suggest, wouldn't it, that there's a lack of respect towards people, perhaps on some of these routes. Now, I spoke to Trace McCullough Amelia. She's director of the Etiquette Academy of Ireland. I began by asking, wasn't it striking, as I said, that we have to introduce these quieter carriages? I feel that since the pandemic, people have, you know, become less caring about others. Loud conversations on your mobile can be very disturbing. And the other thing is, if you're playing music on your recorder, it's wise to have uh, soundproof earmuffs. Now, one thing I would say, just playing the devil's advocate, if, if my phone rings and I'm sitting in a carriage, why shouldn't I answer it and have a conversation with someone? I mean, it is public transport. That's okay if you're, you know, if you're going to have a quiet conversation with somebody, mm-hmm. not a very loud one. Brian O'Connell from Today with Claire Byrne. And that's it for Playback Daily. So mind yourself till next time.